In this series, we've been walking through key passages in the books of Samuel. Now, today's text is the story of David bringing the Ark of the Covenant back to Jerusalem and his dancing before the Ark of the Covenant in 2 Samuel chapter 6. Now, often the sermon we hear about this text challenges us, challenges us to worship as David did, with great enthusiasm, not caring what people think of our delight in God. But I wonder, I wonder if this story is more a warning, a warning to stay faithful than it is a suggestion on how to worship. Let me explain. You see, if we go back to the book of Judges, it ends in a very odd way. Judges 21 verse 25 says this, In those days, Israel had no king. Everyone did as they saw fit. Now, in the times of the judges, Israel lived in a pluralistic culture like the church does today. If an Israelite didn't like a teaching in Judaism, they could find a belief system in a surrounding nation that would support their sinful preference. And this causes Israel to often backslide from God. Instead of accepting personal responsibility for their sinful ways and, and repenting before the Lord, Israel believed that it would be easier to stay faithful to God if they just had a king. If they just had a king, then they would do what God commanded. Then they would stop doing what was right in their own eyes. That's what they believed. But as we have learned, God gave Israel what they wanted, a king. But what surprises Israel is that having a king does not guarantee faithfulness to God. Under Saul, Israel's spiritual life doesn't look much different than it did under the judges. Why? Because King Saul did what was right in his own eyes, which led Israel backwards. Then here comes David, a man described as a man after God's own heart. Now surely, surely we will see a faithful Israel. But as we will see, Israel begins to go backwards as David does what is right in his own eyes. And I think that's what we see in 2 Samuel 6. The story of David beginning to go backwards with God. Let's walk through the story and, and we'll see, you'll see what I mean. 2 Samuel chapter 6. With Judah and Israel united under David's kingship, as we learned last week in 2 Samuel 5, verse 10 says, David went on getting bigger and bigger because the Lord Almighty was with him. As David stays close to God in 2 Samuel chapter 5, God blesses Israel, making it evident to everyone that God had established David as the king and that he gave Israel great honor. Now, after blessing David and Israel, the author of Samuel adds a curious little note. Listen to what it says in 2 Samuel chapter 5, verse 13. It says this, David took more concubines and wives in Jerusalem. Uh-oh, this shows a slip in David's obedience to God. You see, back in Deuteronomy 17, verses 14 to 17, God gives a warning to Israel and to her kings. Listen to what it says. When you enter the land the Lord, the Lord your God is giving you and have taken possession of it and settled in it, and you say, let's set a king over us like all the nations around us. 
be sure to appoint over you a king the Lord your God chooses. He must be from among your fellow Israelites. And do not play a foreigner, place a foreigner over you, one who is not an Israelite. So far, so good. Now jump down to verse 17. It says this. The king must not take many wives or his heart will be led astray. Now we have a problem. You see, by taking many wives, the author of Samuel is telling us, watch David's heart. See where it's going. Something's beginning to change in David, and it's not for the good. So let's see. In 2 Samuel chapter 5, initially, David continues his talking relationship with God by inquiring of God in everything he does. In fact, David asks God in verses 21 to 22, Lord, should I attack the Philistines? Well, God answers him and says, yes. And what happens? David gets victory. God tells him what he should do. Then again, David asks God, should I attack the Philistines? And God tells him in verse 23, not this time, instead of a frontal attack, circle behind them. When you hear the sound of marching in the tops of the trees, that means I have gone before you to defeat the Philistines. And that's what happened. As long as David seeks God and listens to God, God gives David victory. But as humans, with evil in our hearts, we can look at the blessings we receive from God and we can begin to take credit ourselves for what God has accomplished, slowly pushing God to the fringe of our lives. You see, our tendency is to think this way. It's actually echoed in Deuteronomy 8.17 where it says, My power and the strength of my hands have produced this wealth for me. But the very next verse reminds us to think otherwise. Verse 18, remember the Lord your God, for it is he, he who gives you the ability to produce wealth. Well, as we come to our text for this morning in 2 Samuel chapter 6, David is bringing the Ark of the Covenant back to Jerusalem. But it appears that David is forgetting who is doing the bringing. Now again, little background. Back in 1 Samuel chapter 4, the Philistines capture the Ark of the Covenant. Do you remember that? And it's been in storage in Abinadab's farm for roughly 20 years, uh, likely forgotten by many of the Israelites. Oh, but David, David has not forgotten about this Ark. He wants the Ark back in Jerusalem. So David gathers together 30,000 of his warriors to go get the ark. And as they prepare for the trip, someone gives the command to build a new cart. It's mentioned twice that it's new. To build a new cart to transport the ark back to Jerusalem. Well, this is another slip in David's leadership. Why? Well, back in Exodus chapter 25, 12 to 15, God designed the ark to be carried and only to be carried by the Levites of the family of Kohath, Numbers 4.15. God wanted the ark carried by priests so no one would treat the ark as simply a good luck charm, one that's easily taken anywhere for a quick and easy blessing. Because isn't that what Saul did, which is why they lost the ark back in 1 Samuel 4? You see, the ark was to be respected. It was a part of Israel's worship under the leadership of the Levites, the priests. Well, David and his mighty men, they ignore this. 
They arrive, they load up the Ark of the Covenant on the new cart, as the Philistines did, and they start their journey back to Jerusalem. As the Ark Parade makes its way down the road, excitement grows among the crowd, and David and the Israelites begin celebrating with song and dance. It was quite a scene. Then in 2 Samuel chapter 6, verse 6, the writer of Samuel gives us another odd detail. Here's what he says. When they came to the threshing floor, immediately we should be thinking, uh-oh, what's going to happen? You see, in Scripture, the threshing floor is a symbol of judgment. Proverbs chapter 20, verse 26 says, A wise king winnows the wicked and drives a threshing wheel over them. Judgment. Well, guess what? Sure enough, God's judgment comes upon the ark parade. You see, as everyone celebrates, the oxen trip and the ark begins to slide off the cart. And you remember the story, Uzzah touches the ark to protect it from tumbling to the ground. Uzzah did what any of us would do in a similar situation, the right thing to do, the, the noble thing, save the ark. But God killed him for it. You see, the sinfulness of Uzzah touching the cart was more offensive to God than the dirt of the ground smudging the cart. God takes our sinfulness seriously. That's the story. That's the key. But there's something else that surprises me in this text. Back in 2 Samuel chapter 5, Remember how David regularly inquired of God in what he should do with the attacking Philistines? But when it comes to the Ark of the Covenant, is there any prayer? Is there any worship? Are the people prepared for God's presence through repentance and sacrifice? No. David simply goes and gets the Ark because in his eyes, it seems like the right thing to do. Whew. What a warning for the church today. Throughout church history, the church has sought the world's approval. So like David following the example of the Philistines, the church gets tripped up in following the example of the world. In the church, sometimes we think, uh, if everybody's doing it out there, it must be an improvement on what we should be doing in here. Now, such an approach can weaken the witness of the church. If we're not careful, it can change the gospel we preach. Scripture seems to teach that the greatest quality of the church in the world is that we be a peculiar people. The author Rodney Clapp, he has written a book entitled A Peculiar People. In it, he argues that the strength of the church exists primarily in our peculiarity, that we are neither for culture nor against it. We are different. We are a new thing altogether. We are the odd man out. We are, yes, pe peculiar. Hmm, good reminder. Oh, let's get back to our story. After Uzzah dies, David is angry with God. And he stops the parade because he's afraid of God. David asks in verse 9, How can the ark of the Lord ever come to me? Notice, David doesn't ask his question of God. He seems to be asking the question of himself. David wants to know, How can I bring it 
to me, to myself? Well, without an answer, David leaves the ark with Obed-Edom, and he heads back to Jerusalem. Well, time passes, three months to be specific, and a messenger comes to David and says that God has blessed the household of Obed-Edom and everything he has. Why? Verse 12 tells us, because of the ark of God. Again, David doesn't seek God's direction at all. All David wants is the ark back in Jerusalem so David and his kingdom can receive the blessings that Obed-Edom is experiencing. Well, so what happens? He gets the parade together again for the ark and it starts all over. This time, however, they follow God's direction and the Levites carry the ark of the Lord and they offer sacrifices. I'm not sure when, because I can't see it, but at some point, David makes a wardrobe change. He takes off the royal robe of a king and he puts on a linen, a linen ephod, an undergarment that the priests wear. As the band plays, David dances with all his heart. And the word for dance here, it means to spin around, uh, to whirl about in a dance. So as the art parade moves forward into Jerusalem, the whole city is in a frenzy of excitement, except one person. In verse 16, the writer turns our attention from the celebration of the ark's return to Jerusalem and to a window, a window where Michael, David's first wife, is watching the ark parade. Hmm. Scripture rarely mentions windows, but when they are mentioned, often the people looking out of them, they're interpreting what they see. Uh, here's another interesting fact. As the author of Samuel describes the history of the prophet, the judge Samuel, and of King Saul and of King David, every so many chapters, there's a wise and unexpected person who just suddenly makes an appearance. They arrive on the scene, and the surprise is that they correct some error that is taking place. The unexpected person appears in an attempt to get the action of God's leader back on the right path of faithfulness with God. So this surprise appearance occurs, and they're trying to get the, the heart of the leader on the right track. Just read through First and Second Samuel and watch who suddenly shows up. Hannah, Abigail the medium at Endor, Tamar, Nathan, the wise woman of Tekoa, the wise woman of Abel, uh, Rizba, something else of interest in the books of Samuel, with one exception being Nathan, God uses mostly women to warn God's leaders that they're slipping from God's path. The women say such things like this, such things are not done in Israel. Or in the old days, there was a saying, or they would say, how could it enter your head to do the same to God's people? Well, as we follow this pattern into 2 Samuel, guess where the next warning should occur? In 2 Samuel 6. And it is here we should see a woman appear to warn God's leader. And there she is, in the window, Michaela, David's first wife. 
So instead of, uh, excuse me, Michael. So instead of Michael being a bad girl who is trying to protect her reputation as the daughter of Saul, what if God is using Michael to warn David? Hmm. From the window where she is watching, what does she see? Uh, look at verse 20. It says, when David returned home to bless his household, Michael, daughter of Saul, came out to meet him and said, how the king of Israel has distinguished himself today, going around half naked in full view of the slave girls of his servants, as any vulgar fellow would. What is she so upset about? Well, in verse 20, she highlights three problems that she has. Michael has three problems with David. First, Michael is troubled by David bringing honor to himself. Uh, the word in the text here, uh, the word distinguished, it means to enjoy the honor. Could it be that for the further into Jerusalem the ark parade gets, the more David makes the parade about himself? and the less it is really about God? Maybe. Michael may be warning David that he is close to crossing a fine line between worship and self-promotion. Second, Michael is also concerned by the way David shamelessly uncovers himself. You see, as David spins around the ark, he has a wardrobe malfunction, and he dances half-naked. There is intentionally a sexual overtone to this text. You see, the, the comment is, is the com this comment is not the author being a prude. He is explaining something of significance. You see, by wearing the linen ephod of, of a priest, David should act appropriately in his worship. The linen ephod that David wears, the priests were commanded to wear as an undergarment. In Exodus chapter 28, verse 42. In fact, in that verse, the purpose of the undergarment was to prevent the private parts of the priest from being exposed in worship. This was about more than just modesty. In Exodus chapter 28, Moses is explaining how the garment David is wearing was intended to save the lives of the priests from being put to death by God because of a wardrobe malfunction during worship. Isn't that interesting? But David sets it aside. Finally, Michael sees a danger in how David exposes himself to the women as he whirls around. Now remember, Michael is David's first wife. David has six other wives at home and many, many concubines. Could Michael be saying, David, your heart is already being led astray from God by the many wives you already have, and yet you seek the attention of more women? This is not befitting God's appointed king of Israel. Hmm. Have you ever been called on the carpet for something that you did wrong? And even though, even though you know they are right, you reject their warning in a sarcastic way. I wonder if that, I wonder if that's what David does in verses 21 and 22. 
Could his response be a way to manipulate Michael into doubting her judgment? I'm going to read it sarcastically. Verse 21, David said to to Michael, It was before the Lord who chose me rather than your father or anyone from his house when he appointed me ruler over the Lord's people Israel. Do you hear the snarkiness? I will celebrate before the Lord. Verse 22, I will become even more undignified than this. David is basically saying, you think that was embarrassing? That's nothing compared to what I'm going to do. And David goes on to say, and I will be humiliated in my own eyes. But by these slave girls you spoke of, I will be held in honor. I wonder, could David be digging his his heels in to continue doing right in his own eyes? Again, I can't help but see Michael trying to warn David that he is slipping backwards, which will end in the destruction of his kingdom if he continues on this path. David is drifting. He is drifting into doing right in his own eyes. In fact, if you turn in your Bibles just a few chapters over to chapter 11, what happens in chapter 11 of 2 Samuel? It's the story of David's sin with Bathsheba. From chapter 11 to the end of 2 Samuel, David's kingdom falls apart. In Samuel, neither King Saul nor King David were able to lead God's people to faithfulness with God, for they were always distracted by what was right in their own eyes. But there is a king. There is one king who never failed to do what was right in God's eyes. In the New Testament, Jesus is referred to as the king of the Jews, Matthew chapter 1, verse 12. He's referred to as the king of Israel, Mark chapter 15, verse 32. He's referred to as the blessed and only sovereign, 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 15. He is referred to as the king of kings and the Lord of lords, Revelation 19, 16. Even the term Lord used so often of Jesus speaks of his supreme power and authority. Church, Jesus is the only king capable of leading us in being faithful to God. Never be distracted from following Jesus. God bless.